through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, which so far has meant Genesis chapter 1. There's so much in there. We're getting towards the end of chapter 1. We will have at least one more message out of the, the last part here of Genesis 1, I do believe. But we're looking at verses 26 through 29 <clears throat> this evening, as long as my voice holds up. We looked at 26 and 27 the last time, I guess it was two weeks ago now, and tonight we'll add to that, building off of this idea of being in the image of God, and now adding to that what God has given to us in subduing and having dominion over the earth that he has given to us. If you are a baseball fan, you know that on November 2nd, so almost two weeks ago, the Atlanta Braves won the World Series. No go Braves, no tomahawk chop, nothing. Nobody's a Braves fan, okay, nobody cares. And I don't really care about the Braves either, but did you hear the story that came out during the World Series? Now, for those of you that do not know anything about baseball, the bullpen is the place where relief pitchers warm up before they come into the game. You have your starting pitcher, the relief pitchers warm up in the bullpen, they come in to relieve the starting pitcher. Clear on that so far? Okay, good. So during the World Series, I don't know if you saw this, this story, PETA, P-E-T-A, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, started advocating online that the name bullpen should no longer be used, and it should be called the arm barn. Here's their statement. Now, you're, you're already thinking what I'm thinking, don't worry. Bullpen refers to the area of a bull's pen where bulls are held before they are slaughtered. It's a word with specious roots, and we can do better than that. Switching to arm barn would be a home run for baseball fans, players, and animals. Aren't they so coy, a home run? Isn't that funny? Words matter, and baseball bullpens, this is the best part, baseball bullpens devalue talented players and mock the misery of sensitive animals. After I finished laughing hysterically about that suggestion, I thought to myself, well, maybe they're onto something. You know, maybe, maybe there is something there. Maybe these animals are offended by this, and maybe we really should consider this in order to preserve the psyche of bulls all around the world. And then I thought to myself, the bulls didn't suggest this. And no bull has ever been offended by that term. You realize that? Not one, ever, in the history of humanity, or bullmanity, or whatever they call that, not one has ever been offended by that. What, it, what is this? It's an example of this. It's an example of the upside-down values of people who have no regard for Genesis 1. No indication, no regard whatsoever for the relationship within which God made us. Plants, animals, and humans. So a couple rhetorical questions here to get our minds thinking. Are we as humans who are created in the image of God, to be subjugated to the feelings of animals and nature? Are we, as humans created in the image of God, are we subservient to the needs of the environment? Are we to capitulate to Greta Thunberg when she tells us that we are the problem and that we are ruining the planet? Do we give in? Or... 
Are we as humans made in the image of God truly the pinnacle and crown jewel of God's creation and given dominion over the earth? Those are the questions that lie before us. And this is rabid right now, the environmentalist climate change, Greta Thunbergs, have you say your last name, of the world right now, who shake their finger at us and tell us that we are the problem and that there should be less of us. That's not a regard for the image of God, is it? Look at Genesis 1, verses 26 to 29, and we find some answers regarding this idea of environmentalism and climate change and the whole gamut of that. Verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth <coughs> and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat." To start off here tonight, I want to focus on two key words in verse 28. Two key words. The first one is subdue. Right in the middle of verse 28, God says, Be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth, and subdue it. What does it mean to subdue the earth? What does it mean to subdue the earth? One of the, the Bibles that's helpful for me in study is the Net Bible, and it has some notes with it that are helpful, and there's two statements from there. They say that the word subdue means to bring under one's control for one's advantage or to harness its potential and use its resources for your benefit. Now, do we do that as humans in our world today? How do we bring the earth under our control and use its resources for our benefit? A couple ways we do that, and there are millions of examples just a couple examples to show you how we are to subdue the earth. We take bits, right? We put them in horses' mouths. Why? So that we can, James 3 brings this up, we can turn it wherever we want it to go. We train that horse to do a certain thing. That's subduing that horse, subduing the earth as it were. And what has been the benefit and the advantage of horses down through history? Immense. Do we have the right to do that, to put a bit in a horse's mouth and use it for our advantage? What about this, this example? We break a dog of bad habits and can train a dog. To me, this is incredible. If you've ever seen one in action, we can break a dog of bad habits and we can train it to be a seeing eye dog. You ever seen a seeing eye dog in action? It is incredible what they can train a dog like that to do for a blind person, isn't it? Absolutely incredible. And so we broke that dog of bad habits and trained it in a way that subdues it and brings an advantage to its owner. We modify certain plants so that they can withstand elements. They can display certain colors. We mine for coal and other natural resources. Are those things okay for us to do even when environmentalists scream at us against those things? Yes. <coughs> We've been given by God the responsibility to subdue the earth. Why? Why does God give that to us? We'll answer that question in just a minute. So hang on to that question. The second word I want you to see in verse 28 is the word dominion. 
Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowl of the air, every living thing that moveth upon the earth. The word dominion also comes up in verse 26. The word for dominion means to rule over. That God has given us the opportunity to rule over the rest of the earth, the rest of his creation. And I want to give you a couple observations here to guide this idea of dominion. What does it mean to rule over something? Dominion is not to be an evil or domineering thing. Think through the stages in which God did what he did. He creates the earth, creates the world, creates people, gives them dominion before what is introduced into the world. Genesis 3, sin. So we are given dominion over fish and over plants and over animals and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth before the presence of sin. So it is originally intended not to be an evil or a domineering thing because when we start talking about ruling over the earth, a few of the people in our kind of mamby-pamby society that we live in now can get a little offended about that because, well, you just think you're, you're something. You just think you're too big. You just think you're the greatest. Well, God has given us dominion even before sin. So it can be used in a good way. It can be and is to be carried out justly. Our dominion is supposed to be a good thing in the framework and structure that God has given to us. Secondly here, not only is dominion not to be an evil or domineering thing, dominion number two is marred by sin, but not eliminated by it. Do you remember a couple weeks ago we talked about the image of God? and how the image of God is still present in the sinful person, it's just not as readily evident, is it? It's marred by sin, but not eliminated by sin. Same thing here. Our dominion, when we carry out our dominion, we carry it out imperfectly, do we not? We go wrong sometimes in the way we carry out our dominion. Yet, our dominion still exists, yet we are still to carry it out, even though we do it in an imperfect way because we are imperfect people. Go to Genesis chapter 9, if you would, real quick. We'll be back here again later. Genesis 9, I want to show you dominion after sin. It is marred by sin, but not eliminated by sin. <coughs> chapter 9, verse 2 and 3, this is after the flood. Noah has come out of the ark. Start in verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Sounds very similar to Genesis 1, does it not? And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you, all things. God had already given to humankind plants to eat. Now here he also gives them what? Gives us what? Meat to eat. Animals. So another example of our dominion over creation in order to use it for our benefit. And I don't know about you, but when God said, you know, you can eat the, the animals, I don't, that deserves kind of a hearty amen, does it not? I mean, we're talking about bacon now, right? You understand that? That's what chapter 2 and verse 3 means in the original Hebrew. It is, that's what we're talking about. This is, this is an important part for us. We have dominion over animals, even after sin. He actually doesn't draw back our dominion after sin. He actually does what? 
he extends our dominion even further. Isn't that interesting? By allowing us these animals for food. So even though we are sinners, sin does not, does not eliminate our dominion, it just mars our d- dominion. That's why we can still break a horse, we can still slaughter a pig, we can still till the ground, we can still call a bullpen a bullpen. Number three, our dominion has its limits. Back to Genesis 1. Verse 26 and verse 28, God says you have dominion over, and then he gives a list. These are the things you have dominion over. So our dominion does have its limits. He gave us dominion. He gave mankind dominion over every living thing except for one group. I know what that group was? Each other. He did not give us dominion over each other. He goes through plant kind, he goes through animal kind, but he does not give us dominion over us. Our dominion has our limits. Why do we not have dominion in the same way that we have over plants and animals? Why do we not have that same dominion over each other? There's one answer, and it goes back to two weeks ago. We bear the image of God. The image of God is in us. So we are not to subdue or rule over each other in the same way that we break a horse or slaughter a pig or till the ground. There's a difference because now we bear the image of God. Those things do not bear the image of God. They can be ruled over. We, however, do bear the image of God. Now, that does not mean that there is no authority structure whatsoever. That's clear throughout Scripture that there are to be proper authority structures parents and government and things like that. Yet our dominion and how we, or our authority in that way is not the same as our dominion or our subduing of, of uh, animal kind and plant kind. This is why chattel slavery is wrong. Because we do not have the right to subdue or, or have dominion or rule over someone that way. The word for our treatment of, of humankind is not dominion. The word for that is respect. We respect each other. Why? The image of God. The presence of the image of God in every breathing person. I shouldn't say breathing. I should say even the, the person in the womb, too, from the moment of conception forward. Number four, our dominion is not ultimate. Our dominion is not ultimate. We are not given dominion in an all-you-can-eat fashion. Our dominion is limited by whose dominion? God's dominion. So when God makes us in his image and puts us as under rulers, as it were, under shepherds of his care, of his creation, our dominion is limited by God's ultimate dominion. And so we have to know our place in God's framework of things. God created, here it is, God created mankind under his dominion. He created the earth under man's dominion to support man in carrying out God's dominion. Does that make sense? So God creates man under his dominion. He creates the earth under man's dominion for what purpose? To support man in carrying out God's dominion. Ultimately, that's how we are God's representatives. We are his image bearers. We are given the capacity and the authority to rule over creation as his representatives. So God here doesn't just in Genesis one and following, he doesn't just say that Adam has dominion. He actually gives Adam tasks to do that prove he has dominion. 
Look at chapter 2, verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. So here's Genesis 2.15. Adam was to dress and keep the garden. What does that mean? He was to maintain the garden by caring for it. How do, what is one way we care for something? We make decisions regarding it, don't we? We make decisions regarding its care, regarding its maintenance and its upkeep. And Adam here was given the opportunity as a under ruler, under God, to care for the creation that God made, to make decisions regarding its well-being. Another way that God gives Adam dominion is in verse 18. The Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him to help me for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. <coughs> and whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. <coughs> Excuse me. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found in help meat for him. One of the ways that God gives Adam dominion over the animals is that he gets to name the animals. And is that not very true? If you have the authority to name something, it probably means that in some way you have the authority over that. Right, parents? Why did you get the opportunity to name your ch child what you called them? What you call them? And the way you spell it, which parents spell things weird, like J-E-R-R-I-L-L. They just do weird things like that, right? But why do parents have the right to call another person that? Because God's given them an authority over that. So in some way there is, though that's not the right word, dominion, there is a rule over that, that person, that authority that God has given them. So when Adam names the animals, God is putting him above the animals. And it's a demonstration of Adam's authority. So here's the big question. We've talked about subdue. We've talked about dominion. Why can we subdue and have dominion over the earth? Why? Well, God told us that. Yes, but why, do we, why are we the ones that get to do it? Look at Genesis 1.29. There's a key word here. We actually talked about this word, well, the Greek form of it, this morning. God said, behold, it's verse 29, chapter 1. God said, behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed. Genesis 9, what we looked at earlier, verses 2 and 3, verse 3, the end of it, he says, even, so he's giving us the animals, even as the green herb, have I given you all things. Earlier today, earlier this evening, we read Psalm 115. And in verse 16, it says, the, he the, the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to us. He's given to mankind. The reason why we can subdue or have dominion over the earth is because God has given the earth to us. He has given it to us. It's a gift for us to be able to cultivate, to use, to subdue, to have dominion over in order to be advantaged by it. It's a wonderful gift, isn't it? We've talked about this a little bit, you know, looking up at the stars and seeing the, the things that God has given to us here to enjoy. Even the animals, the, the plants, and all these things. It's a wonderful gift, isn't it? And he's given it to us to enjoy. This is where environmentalists get it wrong at the core, though, because they flip this. 
and this is key, they flip this. We know from scripture that the earth has been given to us. Environmentalists, rabid, the, the, the wrong kind of environmentalists, they believe that we were given to the earth and therefore we can't do certain things that mess up its delicate balance. That's, that's wrong. The earth or nature is not our mother. G.K. Chesterton, a famous philosopher, he said this, the essence of all pantheism, evolutionism, and modern cosmic religion is really in this proposition that nature is our mother. Unfortunately, if you regard nature as a mother, you discover that she is a stepmother. Instead, watch this, this is profound, nature is our sister. We can be proud of her beauty since we have the same father, but she has no authority over us. Isn't that good? We have to admire, but not to imitate. Nature, the earth, is not our mother. It has no authority over us. We were not given to the earth. The earth was given to us. So, with that framework in mind, how then do we do this? How do we subdue? How do we have dominion over the earth? A few years ago on a birthday list or a Christmas list or something, Bryson asked us for a pocket knife. Right, bud? He asked us for a pocket knife, and we didn't give him a pocket knife a few years ago. Why? Because we said, I don't think he's ready for it yet. He's not old enough. He's not responsible enough for it. But last year, for a birthday or for Christmas or something, I forget, we, gave, we decided he was ready for it, and we gave him a pocket knife. With, with this warning, when I don't remember saying it, when, I, when we gave it to him, we said this, you can use it but you have to use it with care. It can be dangerous. It can hurt you or hurt others. You use it carefully. And I think that's a great way to look at our relationship to the earth God has given to us. We are to use it. Because think about a pocket knife. If you have the most wonderful pocket knife in the entire world that always stays in your pocket, it does you absolutely no good, right? It's designed to do what? It's designed to be used. So you take it out and you use it. The same is true with the earth God has given to us. The earth God has given to us is designed to be used for our benefit. But when we use the earth, like when we use a pocket knife, we are to do it with care because God has created it. God has given it to us for our benefit. The earth was not given, us, given to us to be a trophy piece that sits on the shelf it was given to us to be useful and beneficial for us. We are to freely use it, but not carelessly abuse it. That's the balance between the two. Freely use it, but do not carelessly abuse it. One of the best statements, and I hope we have this on the screen. Do we have that picture? There it is. Oh, wow. I'm going to have to come down here to read it. This, I took this picture at uh, the Ark Encounter at their zoo. It's one of the greatest statements on this idea of using but not abusing creation. And it says this. I don't know if you can see it any better than I can. Abusing creation versus abusing conservation. As with many things, when people see a problem, they often react by adopting an opposite position. For example, some react to the abuse of creation, such as people dumping toxic waste into bodies of water by abusing conservation. 
seeking to preserve creation at the expense of humanity, sometimes even going so far as to promote our extinction. That's going way too far, isn't it? This extreme form of environmentalism is one of the ways people worship creatures rather than our creator, Romans 1.25. This position ignores the fact that God created us as the crowning jewels of earthly creation, having crafted us in his own image, Genesis 1.27. Here's the best part, this little phrase at the very bottom. As with Adam in the garden, a more biblical approach is to protect and cultivate what God has gifted us without being afraid to use and enjoy it. Isn't that good? Just a good, succinct way of putting that. We are... (coughs) I wrote down that last part up here. We are to protect and cultivate what God has gifted us with, or gifted us without being afraid to use and enjoy it. Here's the difference. Next two pictures. On the left is using creation for your benefit. That's Bryson and Elijah on the camel at the ark encounter. On the right could be more like abuse, yanking on the ear of a goat. We caught him in the act. We did. All right, don't turn this picture into anybody. But here you have the two differences, right? Using for your benefit, potentially harming an animal just because a two-year-old wants to, right? But that kind of sums it up, does it not? Use, but use it carefully. What do we call that? This idea of using what God has gifted us with in a careful manner. We would call that stewardship. You heard that term before? Where we are given what God has given to us or God has entrusted to our care, we are to be good stewards of those things. And this extends beyond just the earth that God has given to us. Yes, we are good stewards of the earth that God has given to us, but it also extends to our time, right? Be a good steward of your time. Don't waste your time, your money, your energy, your talents, your gifts, your resources, and your church. Use them. Use them carefully. Steward them wisely. And as we transition here shortly, I want to kind of draw our attention to this this idea of what we've talked about with stewardship of the earth and draw our attention to stewardship of our church. As we transition to the business meeting here, I'm going to tie those two together. And when I use the word church in this way, I'm thinking more of not the, not the global church of everybody that's a believer, but more specifically this church, the entity of this church with the buildings and the budgets and the programs and the property. This church, just like the earth that God has given to us, is a gift to us for our benefit and blessing. Isn't it a great gift? Isn't it a wonderful gift? Down through the years, some of you have been here a very long time. And I dare say, as you look back over the history of this church, you would say, what a gift God has given to us. A gift to us to use for our benefit and blessing. This church, like the earth, is not just to be maintained for its beauty, but to be actively used for its benefit. I think that's important. It's not just to be maintained for its beauty, but to be used for the benefit that is there. Proverbs 14.4, this is a a profound verse. It says, where no oxen are, the trough is clean, but much increase comes by the strength of an ox. What does that mean? If you don't have any animals in the barn, the barn is beautiful. But what? It's not doing any good. There's no benefit coming from it. It's clean. It's pristine. 
It's gorgeous. There's no productivity from it. And so I want to draw attention to this as we we think business meeting, we think uh, the life of this church. If the beauty of our buildings is our goal, we will probably do so at the expense of some people, ministries, and outreaches. Where we want to keep the trough clean instead of bringing people in. If the sameness of our people is our goal, we will probably do it at the expense of allowing certain people into our midst. If the balancing of our budget is our goal, we will probably do it at the expense of tangible ministry. Is balancing a budget the goal of the church? It's good good to do things well, right, organizationally, but we could have a balanced budget and absolutely fail as a church. Realize that? Absolutely fail. Let's be careful that we don't unintentionally become like rabid environmentalists by trying to maintain the beauty of the church instead of using the church to further the kingdom, even if using it means it's going to be a whole lot messier. Isn't that true? It's messy to do ministry sometimes. It's messy to get in the weeds and and get it done. It's hard. It's exactly what God's called us to as a church. And we've, been, we've talked about gifts today. If you remember back to this morning's message in Philippians 1, the idea of the gift of salvation and the gift of suffering. He's given both of those to us as a gift of God's grace. Tonight we talk about the gift of the earth that he's given to us and the gift of this church. And I'll give Peter the last word here. And he's, he, in 1 Peter 4.10, I know he's referencing the spiritual gifts that each believer has, but the principle applies to all that God has given us. And Peter says this, and I close with this, as each has received a gift... Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Use it as a good steward of God's grace. Let's pray.